I think what we've been seeing in terms of deal flow is some very high quality companies have been trading. You'd expect that, I think, in the current conditions, it's only businesses that have been resilient through this, this period of time that are selling. And we are seeing private equity firms paying very high multiples uh, for quality businesses. And I think we've seen very different deal dynamics, uh, you know, post-COVID, to use that term, than we did pre-COVID. Um, you know, where buyers of businesses have gone out to a very small group of lenders to seek financing. Um, and we've been the beneficiary of that, given our long-standing relationship with a lot of sponsors, private equity firms in, in Europe. So as a consequence of that, the quality of the businesses that we're lending to are extremely good. And I think the capital structures we're putting in place today are extremely solid, um, given the quality of the businesses that we're lending to. So I think the quality of the book is probably, the, in terms of new deals, probably the best we've seen in, in a very long time. That was Adam Wheeler, co-head of Bearings Global Private Finance Group. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number six of season four of Streaming Income. All season long, we are diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can follow us by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guest today is Adam Wheeler, co-head of Global Private Finance at Bearings. Based in London, Adam oversees the firm's European and Asia-Pacific private finance operations. The European platform that Adam leads has invested 9.2 billion euros across 190 companies since its inception back in 2005, including 1.8 billion euros invested over the last two quarters alone. Our conversation today focused on the European middle market lending space. Specifically, we talked about where things stand today when it comes to pricing and competitive dynamics as the region and the world begin to heal from COVID. We also discussed the outlook for defaults in private credit portfolios and ways for investors to think about managing this risk. And we explored the proliferation of ESG in the middle market lending space and some of the innovations that Adam and team are seeing and in some cases driving. Finally, we talked about what's next from the increasing prominence of strategic level partnerships in private credit to the outlook for pricing, deal flow, and competition in the coming years. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Adam Wheeler. All right, Adam Wheeler, welcome back to Streaming Income. Thank you, Greg. It's uh, good to be back chatting to you again. Yeah, for sure. I went back and looked at our prior episodes uh, and checked, and this is actually your third time on the show, I think it is. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and uh, I think we've got some big shoes to fill because the first two episodes that you appeared on are, I think, second and third most listened to episodes on this podcast of all time. So we've got our work cut out for us here. Hopefully we can live up to that. (laughs) He's hoping. All right. So Adam, for those who maybe did not listen to, uh, you know, prior conversations with you, 
Uh, would you mind just helping to give us a little bit of background on uh, the Bearings private finance platform in Europe? Yeah, sure, sure. Happy to do that. I mean, we've we've been operating in Europe now for a, a very long time. I mean, the business was established back in two thousand and five. Um, you know, we've closed on more than two hundred and sixty transactions since then. Um, deployed over over nine billion euros, um, and the business you know continues to grow. I mean, we are now one of well, we are the second most active investor in, in Europe based on on the most recent published information. Um, I think that that's pretty clear now. Um, you know, we we continue to support, you know, private equity firms in Europe that we have supported for for that whole 15-year period of time. Um, so, you know, a very established business with a very long track record of a very solid performance. Yeah, and that level of activity, I think, has been echoed um, by some of the other conversations that we've had on private credit recently. I think specifically with uh, Ian Fowler, who mentioned uh, just the really strong levels of activity in North America. And also, we talked about this with John Bach as well. So it seems like your team has been uh, quite busy, especially the last several quarters, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the last 12 months has been... You know, how can we put it? A, a, a very uh, interesting time to deploying capital. I mean, and clearly, as we went into this lockdown, and I think, you know, twelve months ago, um, we were very focused on on managing our existing portfolio companies, and, and new deal flow did evaporate. Probably, in, you know, in in Europe, that would have been around March or April last year. But as we came into the summer here in Europe, and I, and I think deal flow came back much earlier in Europe than it did in the US, and really accelerated into the end of the year. You know, we ended up having the busiest, the busiest quarter that we've ever had in Europe. Um, mm. To close, closed almost a, a billion euros worth of transactions in that final quarter. Um, that activity. And that momentum has continued in, into Q1. Um, Q1 was very similar. And, you know, by the end of April this year, we'll be well on the way to deploying, you know, 1.2, 1.3 billion euros across almost 19 investments. So a number of transactions we're looking to close in, in March have slipped in, into April, but that momentum is continuing. So an incredibly busy time uh, for the platform. I think what we've been seeing in terms of deal flow is some very high quality companies have been trading. You'd expect that, I think, in the current conditions. It's only businesses that have been resilient through this this period of time that are selling. And we are seeing private equity firms paying very high multiples uh, for quality businesses. And I think we've seen very different deal dynamics, uh, you know, post-COVID, to use that term, than we did pre-COVID. Um, you know, where buyers of businesses have gone out to a very small group of lenders to seek financing. Um, and we've been the beneficiary of that, given our longstanding relationship with a lot of sponsors, private equity firms in, in Europe. So as a consequence of that, the quality of the businesses that we're lending to is extremely good. And I think the capital structures we're putting in place today are extremely solid, um, given the quality of the businesses that we're lending to. So I think the quality of the book is probably the in terms of new deals probably the best we've seen in in a very long time. That's encouraging to hear. I mean, are you seeing uh, impacts from from COVID at, at the market level in terms of you know are there some sectors that are facing difficulties still and but other sectors that that are looking much stronger? Well, clearly, consumer facing businesses 
um, have struggled. I mean, if you think about what's happened in the last 12 months, you know, just here in the UK, you know, restaurants have effectively been closed now for almost five months. Um, you've got lockdowns continuing in, in France and Germany. So I think anything that's linked to over the last period of time, linked to restaurants, um, discretionary spending, consumer-facing businesses, those businesses are clearly struggling for cash flow. Um, well, they've generated zero revenue, so clearly they're, they're burning mm-hmm. cash. And I think the government support programs have certainly helped uh, a lot of those businesses stay afloat, but they are really just sort of essentially furloughing staff here in the UK, um, in, in France and, and elsewhere in Europe, you're able to access some government support. Um, I think a lot of private equity-backed businesses have struggled to access that, that government support, uh, but the furloughing schemes have certainly provided liquidity. I think from our perspective, you know, from, from a, in, I mean, our investment philosophy, we've always focused on lending to companies that we think have the ability to generate consistent cash flow through a cycle. So we're all about investing through a cycle because mm-hmm. we're a debt investor. You just can't time your exit. Um, so we, we, we just assume we're going to lend to a company that's, that's going to suffer through a, a recession. So therefore, our book has none of that exposure. So we have zero restaurant exposure and almost zero um, consumer-facing businesses. So as a consequence of that, I think our book has held up incredibly well. And I, and I think that's why we've been able to, to complete so many transactions through this period of time because we have not been distracted with, with a whole series of uh, difficult situations. Hmm. Now, uh, you talked a little bit about market share. I want to get into the competitive dynamics because you know, given that private credit is, you know, a little bit more of an opaque market, certainly than, you know, some of the, you know, the broadly syndicated loan market, obviously the, you know, public markets like equities, et cetera. Um, it's not always as clear, you know, what's going on from a competitive standpoint. I think there's actually a perception out there that, you know, you mentioned government support as it relates to, you know, some of the underlying borrowers, but I think there's a perception that, this kind of rising tide of government support has actually supported kind of all of all private credit managers and all kind of private credit managers have, have more or less kind of fared okay because of it. So I wonder if that's uh, almost an overly simplistic way of looking at it. And if so, I guess from your perspective, you know, what questions should LPs today be asking of their managers to get a sense of what potential risks are out there, you know, hiding in portfolios and and what happens when this government support starts to recede? Yeah, it's a good question because I, I think, you know, I think here's where, you know, the European landscape does differ from the US. Uh, I think in the US, because of that structure of that market and, and because you have a lot of essentially BDCs investing into the space, so you've got public publicly disclosed information, um, and a lot of transactions that sit in a lot of different funds and and public, um, you know, BDCs, mm-hmm. um, the information is more readily available. And when you look into the European landscape, it, it is a sole lender and it's a private market that is, I think, pretty opaque. Um, so it is quite difficult, I think, to dive down into the details. So you're very reliant on individual managers and their disclosure. And I think you also see very different valuation policies across the landscape in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people holding things are par less impaired. Um, and, and so 
my take on that is I don't think you are seeing the underlying performance a lot of struggling businesses because you've only got to read in in the FT um, to see what's happening in, in certain sectors and how they're struggling. Mm-hmm. And then when you look through you know, deal trackers that are published in Europe, you can see who's done those transactions, yet everyone mm-hmm. is saying that their portfolios are holding up, holding up really well. And I think your point to government support, I think it has enabled a, a bunch of businesses to hang on through this period of time that would have failed a long time ago. Uh, but from our perspective, lending to a restaurant was a, never a good idea pre-COVID because it's a super competitive space um, to, where it doesn't take much for it to go wrong, for it to unravel underneath you. Uh, and I think as a debt provider, that's not where you want to be. So I, I do think you will start to see as governments wind back some of the, the furloughing schemes that you see in the UK uh, and where governments are looking for those loans to be repaid, I think then you will start to see more problems emerge within portfolios. Okay. Um, so I, I think that will happen. Um, and I think it, you know, I, when we talk to to investors, I think smarter investors ask us to think questions like, so, you know, how many companies in your portfolio uh, are not current pay? How many times have you had to inject cash into companies to support them during this period of time? How many mm-hmm, times have mm-hmm. you reset covenants? You know, have you had any payment defaults? Like specific questions down at the portfolio level. And I think that's where you need to go to to really understand what's what, what's going on. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, w- one of the things you mentioned earlier is this kind of idea of private equity sponsors. Maybe, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but consolidating their list of lenders is that an actual dynamic that you're seeing? And then, you know, are there impacts of that in terms of, you know, adverse selection, that sort of thing for for managers who maybe are not on that list? Yeah, I think that is absolutely the case in Europe. You, you are definitely seeing a bifurcation at the direct lending market, where what, you, what you're seeing is a small group of lenders um, providing or completing most of the transactions, and then a very long tail of people who are completing deals really as a consequence of, of that small group at the top saying no. So what we've seen over the last six months uh, is less competition uh, for transactions. Uh, mm. I'm not saying there's no competition, there clearly yeah. is, but, but sponsors are going to a narrower group of people and they're going to people that they have worked with before uh, where they know, you know the style of that direct lender and they know what they're going to get, basically. And they want to work with people who follow through and say what they can do um, or follow through on what they say they will do, which I think in this market is incredibly important. So it's very difficult. I think there are, there are really high barriers to entry in Europe for, for new entrants to come into the market because of, because of that dynamic and because the market is a sole lender market. So I think, I think you're going to see that trend continue. Um, and I think for managers that are in that long tail, it's, it's difficult to break out of that. You were talking earlier about you know some of these you know potential problems I guess that could rear their head almost almost kind of a delayed impact so to speak as the as the government uh, support starts to recede. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about defaults uh, both in you know broadly syndicated markets and also in this market. You know, what we've seen so far in the broadly syndicated market is, to use a term that I think uh, our uh, distressed guys, uh, Stuart Matheson and Brian High, used, we've kind of seen a flattening of the uh, default curve there. 
Um, so it's kind of been pushed out several years, but they, you know, they still think that defaults will uh, ultimately occur. That's in the kind of more broadly syndicated market. Now, in your space, a lot of the talk has been around, okay, how do you deal with stressed and distressed situations? And there seem to be different schools of thought out there. And I and I see a lot of managers talking about, you know, having workout groups to to manage, you know, bankruptcies and stress situations. What's your take on that? I mean, you've been in this industry for uh, for for quite some time. You've seen multiple cycles. Tell tell me kind of your overall view and philosophy there. Yeah, I think it's really important to have people within your team that have experience in in difficult situations. Um, so when you know we've we've got a a, a deep team here in Europe, where with the senior members of that team have worked through um, many cycles and many difficult situations. Um, I think one of the advantages we have at Bearings is, I mean, you, you mentioned mentioned Stu. I mean, you know, we have a access to, to the distressed team and, and their experience in the space. And, and, you know, Stu sits on our investment committee as a consultant during difficult situations. But what we don't have and what I don't think is a great idea is is that banking model where you set up effectively what's colloquially known as the, the bad bank, where you throw transactions across the bad bank to work out. Um, mm. I think if you're in a direct lending group um, and you feel the need to have a workout team of you know six to eight people, I think there's something wrong with your asset selection because you just shouldn't have that many transactions going wrong. I mean, when I look through our history in this space, you know, we've done 250 investments across both the mezzanine and senior space, and I can count on one hand the number of difficult or distressed situations we've been in. Hmm. And the outcome we've had from those has been good. Um, so I, I just don't think that's necessary. I think it just, if you feel the need to fill, to fill out a group there, you, I, I think this, you're doing something wrong on the way into transactions mm. because it's on the way in. I mean, direct lending is all about asset selection because you're going to own it for the life, life of a transaction. And I think you need to have a very clear investment philosophy or understanding of what you look for in an asset when you're going to own that asset for five to seven years. And I think that's all about avoiding businesses that are, that are, cyclical in nature and looking to lend to companies that you think are, are more at the defensive end of the spectrum uh, with good equity buffers behind you with good cash flow generation um, that delever over time. That's what you should be looking for. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I, I can very clearly see how the top of the funnel, so to speak, in terms of the deals that you're doing uh, from the get-go and the criteria that you have up front uh, very much impacts, you know, the ultimate need or lack of a need for, uh, you know, workout group. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this direct lending is is all about sourcing as many opportunities as you can. So, as you, to use your expression, funnel is is a good one. You want a very very broad funnel, so you can be, you know, super selective about what you do, uh, with a very clear view at the outset of the types of things you want to see in transactions. Um, and that's for new portfolio companies. And I think one of the benefits we have is because we have such a big book today, I mean, we're you know, approaching 80, 80 issuers within our book. Each of those businesses is also looking to do stuff, so to buy other things, which means they're looking to borrow more money for, for us. So 
you know, about half the deal flow we do in, in any year comes from our existing group of, of, of borrowers. Hmm. Um, so that, again, that just generates more deal flow for us um, and, and, and ensures that we can be even more selective about new portfolio companies that we lend to because we're not driven to, to search for transactions to invest in. Adam, one of the areas that's uh, that's developed tremendously in recent years across all asset classes really has been uh, ESG. So um, I know that you and the team have been early movers with regards to structuring ESG criteria into transactions. So tell me about that and how you expect that to develop from here. Yeah, I mean, ESG is clearly an important topic for a lot of investors in our platform. It's not a new topic for us. I mean, we've been looking at ESG as a filter and uh, part of our investment analysis uh, since 2016. So it's it's not something new. So it's it's embedded in our decision making process. I mean, we have an ESG committee across the whole of bearings. We have members of the private finance group that are that are part of that committee. So it's something that that we take seriously. And yes, you're right. We've we've been one of the the pioneers in in the space. I mean. The press picked up on a transaction we did um, yes, last year as, and labelled as, as one of the first um, green uni tranche transactions in, in Europe, I should say, the first. Um, Explain what a green uni tranche transaction is, if you don't mind. Well, so into, I won't go into the, into the nitty-gritty, but, but basically in the loan document, um, you set out a number of criteria that, that if the company meets across a range of ESG criteria, um, if, if the company satisfies those criteria, then they get a, a, a step down in, in the margin on the loan. So it's to encourage the right behaviours within that within that portfolio company. Um, and we're rolling that out and we're including that, uh, that structure in, in most transactions that we do now. Hmm. But, hmm. you know, we have to think about doing it with the right owner who, who takes, um, takes ESG seriously. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and of course, for our listeners who don't know, Unitranche being sort of a hybrid between senior and uh, mezzanine private debt. Um, so are you seeing other lenders out there uh, kind of active in this way? Or I, I'm just curious, again, with your perspective and view on this market and how you've seen it develop over decades, how do you think it's going to play out from here in terms of you know, ESG you know, being further embedded into some of this loan documentation? Well, I think that's certainly the trend. I think that um, it's become beginning to become more prevalent in loan documents, uh, and I and I think investors are encouraging us um, to report more detail around ESG, which we've been doing for a while. Um, so I think that is that is here to stay and only going to expand. Um, and I think private equity firms are also taking ESG quite seriously in in how they're assessing companies, but also forcing a lot of their portfolio companies to provide heightened reporting. I think as a as a lender, we encourage borrowers to act in, in the right way through that structure. And I think what we've seen is other lenders in the space have, have copied that approach and implemented it in, in some of their transactions. So I think it is going to become quite common across the European landscape. Interesting. Well, that that's a development we'll look forward to following really closely. Um, if we switch gears and, and zoom out a little bit, uh, I just want to kind of look, look at the asset class and, and see where you're seeing interest today. So I know you're often having conversations with bearings clients, with with other kind of uh, market participants. 
uh, in the asset class. Um, I've noticed this trend toward more uh, so-called strategic level partnerships in this space. Um, I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about that and whether or not that's a trend itself that you expect to develop over time. Yeah, I think, you know, if we take just a step back, I mean, the the asset class is still new to a lot of investors. We're seeing more and more investors allocate to the asset class. And I think it's starting to become a core allocation for a lot of investors, whereas even five years ago, that probably wasn't the case. So so the, the number of investors assessing it continues to increase. And I think we're seeing um, some very large investors take a, a, a different approach where what they want to do is really set up a permanent relationship where they're fully invested through a cycle. So to try and avoid sort of the, the peaks and troughs of funds ramping and running off. Mm-hmm. And for those investors that they want to deploy a certain you know percentage of their portfolio in, in direct lending and be work to have that that fully invested and then just recycle into the asset class. And I think what we're also seeing is those same investors wanting to um, sort of have some sort of tailored approach to, to the asset class as well. So when you have some significant scale, you, you can do that. Um, and I suppose we've we've had some success um, uh, with those sorts of investors uh, recently, uh, you know, raising some some significant uh, mandates uh, because of the scale we can offer them. And they want to work with someone that has the ability to deploy in scale in a short period of time. And I think mm-hmm. that's super important to to those you know those large kind of sovereign type funds. Um, that are looking to develop long-term relationships. Yeah, I was going to ask you what what type of investors kind of are in this category. Uh, I mean, sovereign funds, you know, very large pension funds, um, insurance. A lot of insurance companies are either um, doing this in house as our as our parent does with us, mm-hmm. or um, you know, allocating to managers as well. So I think we're seeing a lot of interest out of North American pension funds for the asset class. Because of the capital treatment in in European private credit, or in, starting uh, to, um, okay. but more in the US, starting to, I think we're seeing interest. We are seeing interest out of out of US pension funds in European private credit, probably for the first time. When I say the first time, I mean probably in scale for the first time. Okay, um, our investor base in Europe is predominantly European pension funds and insurance companies. Okay, is, um, is there historically been sort of a home bias in this asset class? Look, I think that is. I think that's a fair statement, and I think a lot of that has got to do with you know various interest rates for European investors. I mean, interest sure, rates yeah. in Europe have been low, and the cost of a European investor to get access to a US dollar-based um, fund means the hedging costs basically swap out any of the benefit. So I think that they a lot of them have not been that interested in accessing the US market and have focused on the European market. Um, yeah, yep. and we're seeing them come in more scale into Europe as well. Got it. Okay. Well, Adam, we've moved very efficiently through this conversation, uh, so uh, I want to just finish up uh, with a kind of a broad, open-ended question for you here, and that's basically, I'm curious what you think is next for this asset class, um, and of course, you know, thinking about it from an investor's uh, point of view, an LP's point of view. Uh, and whether or not it could be an attractive place, uh, you know, to invest over, let's say, three or five years. I'm curious uh, what's next, and, and maybe what investors should be 
watching or paying attention to in the months and years ahead? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually quite excited about where the asset class is is today. Um, I think if I just talk about the European landscape, I think we're going to see. Uh, I'm excited because I think we're on the right side of that trend. I think we're going to cons- see a, a consolidation of managers. So I think what you're going to see is a small group of managers become quite large over the next three to five years and really consolidate their position. Um, and what I think you'll also see is just because of the structure of the European market here where you are sole lender, you, you see very different portfolios across individual managers. So I think as a consequence of that, you're going to see quite a range of performance across the manager universe. So I think at the sort of at a macro level, you'll see okay performance, but you'll see some really poor performing managers. And I think you'll see some really solid performance amongst a group of managers as well. Mm. So I say all that because I think manager selection makes so much difference difference in this asset class. You know, you, you can't just buy an index in direct lending. Um, the manager constructs a portfolio for you based on the deal flow that they can generate. So that that manager selection here is just super important. And I mean, maybe that's why I'm excited about the opportunity set because I, I can see us being really well positioned to take advantage of that dynamic over the next three to five years here. So I, I think it's a it's a it, it can be a, a really attractive asset class for the investor base because if the manager does his his or her job correctly, you should be able to generate pretty consistent returns um, through a cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, with with limited volatility, just because of the nature of the asset class. Um, and deliver consistent cash flow on a quarterly basis to that investor group, which is really what our investors are looking for us to, for us to do. So yeah. I, I think it can form, you know, a significant allocation for for illiquid credit for people. Absolutely. Well, that's great. That's great context. Thank you for providing that, and thanks for um, you know running us through all this. I feel like we covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So. Uh, very helpful to hear about the the competitive dynamics, how ESG is factoring in, and where that might go, uh, and even uh, you know some of the investors and types of investors who are uh, you know getting even more involved in this asset class. So it's one that you know we continue to talk about on this podcast regularly. I know we talked up front about how this is your third time on the show. Uh, but gosh, we've probably done almost ten private credit. Um, podcast now, but it's great. I, I I love it myself just to stay on top of what's going on in this market because it's not often one that you can just open up the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg and uh, you know get a complete feel for what's happening. So thank you, Adam, for sharing your uh, expertise as always. And uh, we'll have to get you back on the show again sometime soon. Thanks, Greg. Always happy to. All right. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to episode number six of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.